The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone, and a special welcome to anybody who's new tonight. The <coughs> usually right around the equinoxes and the solstices, we have a community gathering. So we had one earlier today, a potluck. And before that, in the Sunday morning program, um, I talked about the three refuges and the five precepts. This is something I do once a quarter. It's one of the few formal or traditional things we do from the Buddhist tradition. The Buddha, um, as a teacher, was very pragmatic, which is why a lot of us are attracted the teachings. And of course, over the centuries, as these teachings got institutionalized, and it sort of can look a lot like other religious traditions, when you look at some of the institutions, the religious structures in Asia. But when you look at the actual teachings of this person that we call the Buddha, which, by the way, just means being awake, right? It's a title that somebody who's awake gets. But uh, when you look at the actual teachings of the Buddha, they're very pragmatic. And one ritual that has uh, was started at the time of the Buddha and then has continued since, it's just this invitation to reflect on our refuge. Like what in this world, and the truth is, anything that would actually be a refuge, it would have to be here, right? It doesn't really matter if there's a refuge, but if it isn't here, it's not really a refuge. (laughs) It's got to be available in order to actually be protecting or a refuge for me, right? So the Buddha encourages us, and there's a formulation that we do in the Buddhist tradition where we take refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, and I'll explain this in a minute. But the important thing to remember is Whatever those three things are, what, what were those words that Mark just said? You know, whatever those words are, whatever they point to, it has to be here and now. It can't be about somebody else or a long time ago or later when we're a really good meditator, then we have the refuge. It's something that we can at least begin to uncover here and now. It has to be pragmatic. It has to be available here and now. And you don't have to use those traditional words of Buddha, Dhamma, or the other, the Sanskrit version of that is Dharma and Sangha. You don't have to use those words. But I think what we all have to do, what anybody who's actually interested in waking up or interested in being wise and kind, what we have to do is we have to, in our practice as a human being, spiritual practice or whatever you might call it for yourself, in our practice, we have to be interested in what is actually a refuge. So much of the process of being a good, wise human being is sort of figuring out what's not a refuge. I mean, hopefully over the course of our lives, things that we used to take refuge in, like for instance, when we were teenagers and in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, 70s and 80s and maybe 90s, one of the things we tend to take refuge in is having people like us. 
Like I can only get you to like me, think I'm great, then that's a refuge that somehow I might imagine is actually going to take care of me. But it turns out it doesn't really take care of us. You know, you get a certain number of people to like you, and then you want more people to like you, more high-status people to like you, right? Well, of course, you like me. But <laughs> how about some of you high-status people? Do you like me? Do you like me, Lewis? <laughs> so we want the elders, we want the wise people to like us, you know, to want to spend time with us. So we we keep looking at the things that used to matter, used to feel like a refuge, and then it turns out it, it turns out to be instead a kind of prison. Like needing that in order to feel safe didn't actually lead to safety. It led to a greater sense of vulnerability and insecurity. <clears throat> so we don't want to just believe what the Buddha says is a refuge. His phrase was ehi pasiko, come and check it out. Right. So we have these teachings about what is truly worthy of placing our heart upon, living our life out of, you could say. But now it's our chance to check it out. Like, does it work pragmatically, directly, immediately in this moment, at this time, with this life, these circumstances? Does it actually turn out to be a refuge? Not something that comes and goes. It's the same thing with things like wealth or health. You know, these are classic refuges for us. Having a lot of money, having a lot of good health, youth. But then, of course, these things are things that come and go. They're insecure. We're not in control of our wealth, our health, age, or anything that we might have taken refuge in or hoped that would take care of us. I did a memorial service yesterday for Carol Miller, somebody uh, who's been part of the community for a long time and uh, seemed really healthy. He just did the year-end retreat and he just had a massive heart attack and died uh, last week. So, I mean, there are many of these kinds of examples that we have. Or other things where people felt really secure in their job and then it wasn't there anymore. Felt really secure in a relationship and then it fell apart for whatever reason. <clears throat> so, this uh, practice of remembering and contemplating and checking out what's truly a refuge, this isn't like complementary or on the side of spiritual practice, it's really right at the core, at the heart of spiritual practice. Another way I think about this, maybe you'll find this useful too, that instead of thinking of the spiritual path, spiritual awakening as sort of like doing the work and getting there, it's more like so much of the path is figuring out, is this really the path? Oh no, this isn't the path. Like for those people who've been you know, on a path, on a spiritual path for a long time, one of the very distinct things you'll hear from people like that is, well, yeah, for these four years, I thought this was the path. And then I woke up a little bit more, 
and I realized, well, I was kind of right, I was kind of wrong. And so I shifted my practice, I shifted my spiritual life. And then for the next seven years, it was like this. And then I woke up a little bit more, and I realized, not really right. I mean, there was, some, there was something right about it, but it basically wasn't the way. And I shifted. And so what do you get over a lot of those shifts? Humility, right? Like what I'm taking to be my spiritual path now maybe isn't complete. Maybe my understanding <coughs> excuse me, isn't complete yet. So a lot of humility. And so part of that expression of humility is a very sincere, preferably every day, like at the beginning of your sitting practice, so you sit down, you get stable, you get comfortable, and then it doesn't have to be involved, it doesn't even need to last long, but some version of, why am I doing this? Like, Whatever my spiritual practice is, whatever I do reflexively as a spiritual seeker, what's it about again? Where, where am I going? Like, means and ends, they should be in alignment, right? Like, So where are we aiming, and is the way I'm aiming, does it have the flavor of what I'm aiming towards? So if I'm aiming toward universal love, loving all beings, including myself, then do my practices have the flavor of that kindness? Or am I using ill will to get to goodwill, <laughs> which, by the way, as you can guess, doesn't work. Or am I using tension to get to release? That doesn't work either. So reflecting on our refuge, like goal, you know, you can definitely be too goal-oriented, but just because you can overdo it doesn't mean you can neglect doing it, like not having, well, I'm just sort of living my life. Well, if we just... Like uh, some one teacher says, you know, if we're just following the heart, which sounds good, you know, I'm just following my heart. But the truth is, when we look at the conditioning of our mind and heart, I don't know about you, but a lot of our, a lot of my conditioning, at least, is driven by greed, anger, and delusion. So just following our habit energy means we just get more of the same: more greed, more anger, more delusion. So we're not just following the heart. We're, you know, we're paying attention, and a lot of what we pay attention to in the beginning is that humility thing I was talking about. Like, well, maybe I don't know, right? So then we're willing to listen beyond our own what our own mind tells us. Like, does anybody, does anybody talking about a peace, a happiness, a love, a freedom that's here and now that's not about particular circumstances? that I could possibly check out. Right? So maybe we stumble upon the teachings of the Buddha, somebody wise, for example, and we check it out. And the Buddha says, okay, well, what I found in my life, my practice, that are worthy of refuge, worthy to place our heart upon, is what he called Buddha. So Buddha, I mentioned, is a title. It just means awaken, or you could say awakenness. So there's something that's here and now, doesn't come and go. Maybe it's obscured, but it's here and now. 
that has this quality of wakefulness. So let me talk about this as a refuge because it doesn't seem like much. And in a way, instead of trusting this capacity of our heart or mind to be awake, to be present, we don't like it too much often. I mean, why else would we be so addicted to distractedness? You know, like absorbing into this, absorbing into this obsession, absorbing into this entertainment, absorbing into this drama. Why would we keep getting lost in thought, basically, if we deeply trusted this simple, clear, non-judging presence? And one of the reasons we don't haven't learned to see it, to experience it as a refuge is we when we what happens when I like right now we can just do this. When we in a sense relax into the natural like the mind, right? Isn't the heart or mind already sensitive, already exposed to the way it is right now? Like the way the body feels? The temperature of the room. And whatever emotional movements are going on now for you, aren't we, isn't the heart already feeling? I mean, we can be distracted, but as soon as we're reminded to just notice, we notice we're already sensitive to whatever emotions. Maybe it's a sense of flatness, like sometimes people think, I'm not, I don't have any emotions, but that is an emotion, you know, that numbness the not feeling anything, that's an emotion. You can call it depression, you can call it numbness, you can call it the emotion of being closed down, but that's an emotional feeling too. And we're sensitive to that, naturally. It's not even possible to turn it off, that sensitivity. Like, can you shut off your sensitivity to the body? Or can you shut off your sensitivity to thought and other mental activity? There isn't an on-off button. We can only get distracted. So then for a while, we're forgetful that the body feels like this. Emotionally, it's like this now. The attitude of the mind, the quality of the mind is like this. The content of thoughts is like this. We can, with some work, with some stress, we can get distracted. But then when we're cued, when we're reminded... There we are, and often we don't like to land right back in the middle of our life. It feels either heavy or overwhelming, or closed down, or you know, mysterious. So we wanna, we often wanna jump right back into thinking about it, getting lost in thought again. So part of this checking out, this first refuge the Buddha suggests. So he's not saying, take refuge in me. He specifically said, you know, my body, this physical life, it's going to come and go. And if you take refuge in that, you're going to be disappointed when it goes, (laughs) right? Because, but the teachings and what the teachings point to, that's your refuge. So the teachings point to quality of the, it's hard to say, it's hard to describe it. I'm not sure I'd say a quality, but a realization. I think that's a safer 
way to describe it, where the mind, the heart, is able to realize or intuit something about the very nature of the mind-heart that's here and now, that's really trustworthy. And let's just, it's not, a, it's not perfect in any uh, stretch, but let's just call it awareness. But it's not as simple as awareness, or it's not as obvious as awareness, but awareness gets us part of the way there. So let's just say there's something about awareness, an open, non-judging presence. And by learning to trust that, to take refuge in that, something radical shifts in our life. Like when I, and you can do this right with me right now, you know, when we, in a sense, relax back into the awareness that's already here, the awareness that's already happening, it, it radically shifts the relationship the mind has to the experiences that are coming and going. That's what we call, that's what we mean by dharma or dhamma. Buddha knows dharma or dhamma. Awareness is aware of what's happening, what's coming and going in experience. So mostly we're oblivious to awareness. We're just obsessed with what awareness is knowing. We're interested in the objects of awareness, right? But not so interested in awareness. We just, in a sense, take it for granted that there is awareness. So now we're learning to notice that objects of experience are being known. Right? And not only that, we're intuiting, we're realizing that we can, the mind, the heart, in a sense, can trust that as a refuge. So now the one who knows. Initially, it's okay if it feels like you're being the witness or the observer. That's like an initial step. Oh, okay, I'm just here at Common Ground on Sunday night, observing Mark give a talk, observing the folks around me, observing the sensations of the body, observing this, observing that. I'm in this place of the observer, the witness. But you already notice that there's a lot more equanimity about what the observer, what the witness knows, right? Because we're sort of, not really, but there's a sense of having some space, the space of freedom. We're not so entangled, right? Because now we're just in the knowing. Oh, this is being known. It's just stuff happening. Just Mark giving a talk. Just a bunch of people. Just the, sen- just the body sensation. It's just the way that it is. Well, can that be okay? So what we're doing is we're cultivating this dynamic relationship between Buddha and Dharma. It's like a different way of being. So the refuge that the Buddha is asking us to check out is this dynamic, a way of relating, a way of being. That's, And this is why it's unconditional. This way of being will work in any moment. So it's not about a particular set of circumstances. We're not looking for a refuge where I have this beautiful, amazing body worker 
undoing all the knots in my back and I'm in a really tranquil place, you know, with nice music. I mean, that's kind of that stereotype, that idea of heaven, right, as, as a refuge. Get me to a really nice place. Some of you know, some of you have been around for a long time, know that we spend a lot of time and money. I think the community, that means a lot of us, those of you who've been around, we spent, I think, close to $900,000 on this building. I mean, the purchase and then especially the renovation. And plus, you know, an almost infinite number of community members' hours because some of it we paid for. And, and, uh, but on top of that, a lot of community members put a lot of time into the building. But then a semi can park right outside, and in the wintertime they keep their engines running so that they can, you know, the probably drivers have some space between one run and the next run, and legally this neighborhood's still zoned as semi-industrial or something like that, so they have legal rights to park here. You know, and it's like, oh, we did all that work, and now there's the sound of a semi, right? So this is the vulnerability but this refuge of Buddha knowing Dharma, this wakefulness, open awareness, being intimate with the way it is, that way of being, if the mind understands it, if the mind has realized it, that way of being is available in the most beautiful, pleasant situations of your life and the, more, the most difficult situations of your life. Because what could get in the way of our mind or wisdom, let's say, relating in this way. Being radically open, radically intimate, allowing the conditions to be. Is there anything that could prevent the heart from letting conditions express themselves as they are? Well, you could say, well, fear could get in the way, but then Buddha could know that. That, oh, Fear. Well, I'll let that be. So, just to review. So, two refuges to check out. Buddha, knowing Dhamma. We take refuge in Buddha. We take refuge in Dhamma. This is very traditional in the traditional Buddhist tradition. So, what that means is, in our practice of meditation and daily life, we're learning to realize, to intuit, this quality of the mind that initially we can just call awareness. But it's not anything, because if it's something, then it's not awareness. It's something awareness is knowing. So awareness is a word, but whatever this refuge is, it's empty in the sense of it can't be grasped. So there are experiences that are being known, but known by what? That we can't know. That's the mystery, right? So there is a knowing happening, awareness happening, but it's empty. It's not me, it's not you. I can't turn it on and turn it off. I don't own it in any way. But the mind can realize it as a refuge with practice because it's not our habit, as I said. Our habit is to get involved, attached to the objects of awareness, like my thought, that's an object of awareness, or my what I'm seeing, or what I'm hearing. And we get sticky, we get attached, identified with the objects of awareness. Now we're 
learning to notice that there is awareness. It's a great mystery here. And I'm going to learn to trust it, to realize it is trustworthy. It does its thing. It's always doing its thing. It never gets tired. Can you stain awareness? Because you might think you can, like when we're feeling depressed or when we're feeling lustful or we're feeling angry, feeling disconnected, it seems like the awareness is colored by that mood or that attitude, doesn't it? But maybe you have a mood or attitude right now. Can that be known? How would you know you have a mood if you're not knowing it? Right. So however dark the mind might seem, however heavy the mind might seem, however restless the heart or mind might seem, isn't it true that that can be known? Oh, restlessness is like this. Sadness is like this. Numbness, anger is like this. And there's something liberating when Buddha knows Dhamma, when that awareness is intimate with the way it is. Now here's another really powerful aspect of these, this dynamic refuge, Buddha knowing Dhamma. The world, which is in the way I'm talking tonight, that's dharma or dhamma, right? the way it is. That's everything that's in motion. Thoughts are in motion. Emotion is in motion. Feelings are in motion. Sights, visual experience is in motion. It's fluid. It's changing. Auditory experience, hearing, right? that's all in motion. In fact, Everything we normally take reality, the world to be, that's dharma. That's the way it is, right? And it's a refuge. It's not a problem. We normally think this messy, crazy, uncontrollable world is a problem. But it's only a problem when <clears throat> we're unaware, haven't realized Buddha. So this is the interesting thing. Buddha, this understanding, slowly, gradually, waking up, intuiting, realizing Buddha, wakefulness, even though I know it sounds flimsy to call it wakefulness, like how is that going to help me with financial insecurity? Or how is that going to fix my marriage? Or, you know, whatever. So the Buddha says, check it out. So the thing about <clears throat> Buddha is, it's the only thing that can be intimate with dharma, the way it is. And there's no way to be skillful, there's no way to respond appropriately in any moment of being engaged in life if you're not intimate. It's like, what's the proximate cause for an appropriate response? Any situation, any moment of your life, what do you need in order to respond appropriately? Well, you have to really be there. You have to be sensitive. You have to be awake. You have to be connected to what's happening in that moment in order to respond appropriately. Otherwise, we're responding on some fixed idea of what the situation needs. And, you know, every once in a while we get lucky and the way we respond happens to coincide or be in alignment with what we would have done if we were really present. But a lot of the times, the great majority of the time, we keep missing the mark. 
because we're reacting, we're acting based on our thought about what should be done, not based on being really there in the moment, intimate, present. This is you, th- you know where you notice this a lot is when we're talking to another human being, especially somebody you know or somebody you, you immediately think you know where they're coming from or where they're going. And so your response to them is based on your conclusion, not based on being present with them or open. And this is difficult, challenging practice to actually have an interaction, you know, to really be there in an interaction with somebody, or even like for us to be here in this room together in an authentic, intimate way. Because what happens is we have a thought about what's happening, or we have a thought about who I am, and then we get confused by that thought. We, take, we get identified or attached to it as if that's who I am. And then that fixation, that attachment, it, it serves as a separation from the way it is. There's the idea of me here and the way it is. Because the mind is fixated, attached, identified to this thought of me, how can I actually be present? So when Buddha knows Dharma, we get a lot. We have freedom, right? Because when we take refuge in the knowing, then we have to abandon ideas, fixed ideas of me and fixed ideas of you and fixed ideas of what this is, right? Because now I'm taking refuge in the knowing. There may be an idea arising in the mind, like the thought, I'm no good or you're bad or this is stupid, right? So we could have those ideas arising in the mind, but from the point of view of Buddha, what would that be? Well, that's a thought being known. That's just a thought being known. It's just a thought being known. It's just something being known. It's just this, activity of the thinking mind being known. So immediately, in taking refuge in the Buddha, there's freedom from whatever else the mind would be attached to or fixed on. And they're like little prisons. Whenever my mind gets attached to the idea I'm no good or I'm better than, that the not the thought, the thought's not much of anything, but the attachment, the identification to those thoughts is very much like a prison for as long as the attachment lasts. The mind is imprisoned and also experiences itself as separate, apart, distant from everything else, which means it's impossible really to be skillful, which is frustrating. So not only is it painful to have separated out ourselves by getting attached, but then because of the attachment to fixation, our response in the moment is always a little off. That's why we call it dukkha. Some of you have heard that word. It means when the axle doesn't fit the wheel. And so the vehicle that's moving is clunky. Our life is clunky. It doesn't work very well when we're separate, when we feel apart, when we're lost in our thought or caught in a fixed thought about who I am, who you are, what this is. 
So every time, every time there's a moment where we trust Buddha, which is really what we're, when we talk about mindful awareness, this is what we're talking about. Mindful awareness is not the same as being conscious. We're conscious all the time, except when we're sleeping. It doesn't mean we're mindful. Mindfulness, especially to the nth degree, mindfulness means that in that moment or in those moments, the heart is realizing this refuge. Like it's like relaxing back in awareness. And that relaxing back in awareness is not a distance. When we relax back in awareness, we end up right in the middle. What would the distance be? There's no distance. right? So to be really intimate, really showing up in our life, we need the refuge of Buddha. And then we understand Dharma or Dhamma. This is the other refuge. right? We need to take refuge in Buddha so we can take refuge in Dhamma. The life, the conditions that are showing up right now. We need the conditions right now to express the freedom that's here. Like, Because this is what I realize. When I'm in the mode of Buddha knowing Dhamma, I realize that I don't need to be afraid of these conditions right now. I don't need to be tight. I don't need to need the moment to be different than it is. That's the freedom. That's the liberation the Buddha pointed to. The liberation of Buddha being right in the middle of Dhamma the way it is. And that that really points to this third refuge, right? I mentioned there are three refuges, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. Sangha, often people use it just conventionally as spiritual community. More traditionally, it would mean monastic community or even more technically, Sangha means hanging out or being around enlightened beings. Well, there may not be any fully enlightened beings around here, maybe. Let us know. (laughs) But for sure, there are moments where some of you, right, each of us in moments, were Buddha knowing Dhamma. So that means that our response, how we're responding, how we're engaging, what we're doing, how we're relating, it means it's beautiful. It's Sangha. So when somebody talks about Sangha in the deeper sense, they mean that, you know, I was around that person the other day, and for whatever moment in that challenging situation, they, you know, the way they responded was so beautiful. It was so inspiring to see how that person was able to show up in that moment. I don't know if I could have done that. You know, they really, they were present. They didn't react or whatever it might be. But what allows for those, for a human being to respond, to take care of a situation in a very beautiful way? Well, you can check it out. Is it that in that moment or in those moments, they weren't a human being in the (coughs) sort of usual sense of the word, they were Buddha knowing Dhamma. There was this natural, empty awareness that was intimate. 
unafraid, not needing the moment to be different than it is, intimate with all the conditions. And then out of that beautiful dynamic of Buddha knowing Dhamma, the person said the right thing, didn't say the wrong thing, did the right thing, didn't do the wrong thing. There is an appropriate response. In a funny way, this is the fruit of awakening, an appropriate response. There's a famous Zen story in China, Chan is what Zen was before it went to Japan, the name Chan, Chan Buddhism, which is just, uh, you know, over the many centuries, 2,600 years, so a lot of time has gone by since the Buddha taught these teachings. And so things get ossified, and there's always a reformation. So Zen in China was one of those reformations. Hey, this has gotten really institutionalized, really theoretical. Let's get back to the basics. And then that reformation was like a beautiful flowering of the Buddhist teachings. And so uh, in those early centuries of Zen, kind of this reform movement in Buddhism, um, somebody asked this teacher, you know, in just a few words, please sum up the entirety of the Buddhist teachings. And he said, an appropriate response. Right? That's the fruit or that's the meaning of this path. Because in order to have an appropriate response, no matter the moment, no matter the conditions, we need the supports for that appropriate response. And what are the supports? Buddha knowing Dhamma. Right? So when we sit and then all day long through our daily life, we're cultivating Buddha knowing Dhamma. And that's how you know it's a refuge because a refuge is that ends or the means and the ends are in alignment. So the practice, the means, is in alignment with the goal. So the goal is freedom, is an appropriate response, is love or compassion, is wisdom. But the actual dynamic of that goal is Buddha knowing Dhamma, expressing Sangha, expressing this sort of appropriate response, manifesting an appropriate response all day long. So when we sit down you know, to meditate, take a few minutes few seconds at least, just reflect, okay, what am I doing? Oh yeah, the Buddha said there are three refuges. There is something called Buddha, which is pointing to the awakeness of this mind, this heart, this awakeness, this clarity, this wisdom, this awareness, it's already here. The Buddha is pointing to something that's already here. Now it might be obscured by our distractedness or obsessiveness of the mind, But then in the little cracks, you know, like when one thought ends, but before the next thought begins, you might notice a kind of space or silence of that awareness. Because the awareness isn't a thing, is it? If it's a thing, then it's something awareness knows. But the awareness itself is nothing. And that aspect or that reality of the mind can be realized, can be intuited can be trusted. And then we learn how to be more intimate. You can't want to be intimate in the moment. 
because we just bring the guy who wants to be intimate. And it's like in the way of being intimate. I mean, we've all tried this, haven't we? Like wanting to have a moment with our dog or our cat or another human being. Or <laughs> I remember this especially after college, before my first job, I did a lot of backpacking actually for the first few years after college. And, uh, and it was always like commune with nature, you know, all that. But what do we find? There we are in the most amazing places. And what do we find? We find our petty mind worrying, planning, obsessing about this and that, right? We thought we were going to be intimate with nature, one with the great nature or something like that. And we just end up being obsessing like we could at, you know, the Mall of America. It's really not different. We just thought it would be. And that's the thing. It's because what we're what we're realizing with Buddha knowing Dhamma is something that's universal. Because when we understand the capacity to trust awareness, we realize this capacity to accept, to be intimate with whatever shows up, Dhamma, the way it is. And how to be skillful, how to respond appropriately. So this is the freedom the Buddha pointed to. And you can call it Love, you can call it compassion, you can call it wisdom, you can call it freedom, liberation, nibbana. But whatever it is, everything we need is here. So if we look anywhere else, we're missing the point. It's here. So I'll leave it here. And maybe some of you have some thoughts to share or questions about the talk. Most of you know, but if you don't, we have this wonderful directional mic so we don't get feedback, but that means you've got to point it right at your mouth like this in order for everybody in the room to hear you. So what comes to mind? What have you learned in your own practice that seems relevant? Yeah, I'm going to pass it to the back. Um, thanks for your talk tonight. Uh, I'm Glenda, and um, I'm wondering, uh, I've been thinking about these three refuges a lot lately, and I feel confused about where um, relationships, platonic and romantic, fit into this. Um, I think kind of like you had talked about, I've for a long time felt a lot of refuge in both of those kinds of relationships, platonic friendships and romantic relationships. And I've been questioning a lot lately if those are false refuges, I guess, or what makes them false refuges or not. Um, so I guess my question is just that I feel confused and <laughs> it would be nice if you would talk about it. Yeah, no, it's a really important point. And, and, you know, we could add some other things besides, let's call it uh, really wholesome community, really wholesome intimate relationships, just having our um, livelihood act together where we have good livelihood, where we have an occupation or a way of, earning enough money that doesn't harm, doesn't take advantage of other people, where we're creating something of value and then the world supports us so we can buy food and shelter and things like that. So there are many relative refuges. But in our practice, we want to do two things. We want to gain some competence at having wholesome intimate relationships, building wholesome community, 
wholesome livelihood. We want to be good at that, but at the same time we want to understand its limited nature. One of the most gratifying things for me in my, let's see, we moved here together in 1991, so that's 25 years now. Um, My partner and I have been together, my spouse, Wynne, who's one of the co-founders of Common Ground. She'll be teaching, I think, next Sunday night, possibly, here, because I'll be on retreat. Um, But one of the most gratifying, enlivening things about our practice is I think we, as much as we love being together, as much as we derive support from each other's presence and each other's practices, we can honestly and openly admit that we're not each other's refuge, that I can't really save her and she can't save me. My love for her, as supportive as that can be, is not going to save her. It's not ultimately a refuge. And that's really liberating in a relationship because it frees up this wrong idea of responsibility that, you know, so many things, I mean, one of the things that ruin so many relationships is this idea that you're supposed to make me happy. So get with it, you know? It's like, <laughs> even, even like in this situation, like, you know, Mark is here to make you happy or you guys are here to respect me and like me enough so I feel good. So get with it, you know? Because I need you to feel good about myself. And it really corrupts relationship when we have this wrong idea that they're an ultimate, that the relationship is an ultimate refuge. I mean, this is something we wake up with our parents. Some of you, you did it when you were two or three, and you realize my mom or my dad is not a refuge for me, right? They're mixed up. Sometimes we don't get that until much later, like when they die. And we thought they were a refuge for us. It's very interesting, even for a few, those of you who had uh, relationships with your parents and you knew on some level that, they were just a human being. But it's interesting when they die, where they're no longer, their body's no longer there. It's like, oh, even though I knew they were just a human being, on some primal level, I was still co- counting on mom or dad being there. Right? So it's just interesting how we have these ideas of refuge, and then they're gone. And so why not be really honest about it when it's appropriate in our relationships? Like, yeah, let's get together. Let's build a life together. Um, but it, but it will be just what it, what it is. It will be more what they are is not a refuge, but a teacher, like showing us, reflecting t- back to us a lot of our conditioning that may not be very trustworthy. Right? But now we get to see it because the person provokes it. You know, they sort of provoke that response. And not all bad. Some of the conditioning is quite beautiful. So just try having that conversation with your friends or your partner. You know, like, what does it mean to build a life together? Or what does it mean to have an intimate relationship where we're deriving some real support from each other, but we understand at the same time the limitations of it? But just because it's limited doesn't mean it's not something, right? Because we tend to want, well, if you're not going to take care of all of my needs, why bother? (laughs) 
Because this really helps us, because people who have this, this wrong idea of a soulmate that's just out there waiting for you, as opposed to, you know, if we work at it, we can, we can make something happen where we can support each other. If we're really honest with each other, we might be able to, because you might be good enough and I might be good enough for you to sort of build something of value. And that's a different idea, like you, we put together a relationship, we know it's not perfect, and we know it's not going to take care of everything that the heart needs. But we'll work on it. And then maybe it works for a while and then it doesn't work. But it's so interesting, we always think that something will be easier, like because we see the limitations, we want to dismiss it, as opposed to, well, maybe I can work, maybe we can work around those limitations, or maybe we can you know, sort of modified, or maybe I can get what I need over here that I'm not getting over there. So there's all kinds of pragmatic ways to work with relationships. And this fits much more in line with the Buddhist teachings than a more sentimental or idealistic idea of love or relationship, you know, where we have this, you know, like the music teaches us, that there's some perfect relationship that's going to and the, the sort of height of human existence is that perfect love. It's actually, some of you might know this, it's a relatively new concept in human existence, this idea of like transcendent love between one human being and another. Somewhere in, the, I think around the 14th, 15th century, this, it's just an idea that got creative, created rather, and then, you know, it has some legs. They wrote poetry and made songs and... It's very inspiring. This, it's like another version of transcendence. Like we lift ourselves out of the meanness through this transcendent relationship with another human being. And the ideas are very potent. So as long as the ideas work, it really feels that way. I mean, literally feels that way. But those ideas are very vulnerable to things that contradict that idea of the person being whoever we imagine them to be, like they're just a human being with good and bad conditioning, wholesome and unwholesome conditioning. Hope I didn't pop any bubbles. (laughs) (laughs) Other thoughts people have? Yeah, Lewis, please. Okay, I've I've been home uh, just a few days over a month. Um... And I'm not having the feeling of whatever being back home means. Um, You know, as you know, I was in Africa for a couple of months and had some very intense experiences and uh, had the experience of working in a community uh, to um, create a situation where people could localize their economy and in terms of food anyway and also create an early childhood center in a very rural place where something like that doesn't exist and having other villages say yeah great idea we want that too Um, now how can I the thing is okay I'm back and I have things to do here, things I want to do here, 
my children are here. I have all these friendships here. But there's this feeling of being unsettled um, and seeing the world in some different ways, like really seeing how uh, what's kind of been normal in terms of 20th century, like this stuff is coming apart and something else is trying to be known and something else is trying to exist. And it's like... Maybe something died in Africa. <sighs> it's something about you, you know. And so maybe you want to come back and be an adult, but maybe you're, you're an infant now. Because this happens in life. It happens like in breakups and job changes and intense experiences, especially like traveling, being in a different place, is that because we're not actually somebody. We're just this unfolding process. And when something big happens, it can really shift. And so who we thought we are is no longer there. You know, and you, might, you maybe didn't notice it over there because it was so new, but now you're back in familiar settings like you described, but you don't recognize. And so you're trying to name what's going on, like I, I'm tired, or you know, you might kind of try to describe it, but the only thing that's really you're clear about is it's different. It's different. And so this is part of like when you take on this practice, get ready because it's powerful. Like paying attention, it's, one, it's not just paying attention as we're allowing the heart and mind to be more sensitive. And so every experience, it shifts things. And big experiences really shift things, like a seismic shift. And then we, we can't immediately put back the pieces because they don't make sense anymore. So just let it be discombobulated for a while. Like you may, you know, nobody around you would necessarily notice Lewis. Inside, you may feel completely unput together, completely uncertain, don't know mind, we say. But on the, you know, on the surface, you might actually look like you're competent and say the right things at the right times and all those kind of things. And then you're just sort of letting something new be created. And it's a little bit like what you've been talking about. Lewis teaches here at the center. Some of you maybe have taken his program. He'll be doing a workshop for artists and activists. Is it Saturday the 21st? 23rd. 23rd. But, uh, you know, it's a little bit like some of the work you're doing and you've been talking about how some of the systems are falling apart. And so, but they need to fall, fall apart for something new to be created. And that's true internally an individual in the same way that it's true in society or in communities that something has to die. Now we always hope that it's a really beautiful gradual process but it isn't always. You know sometimes it's really as you know it's really messy. Yeah thanks for sharing. And by the way if you're interested in that day-long workshop uh, I've heard reports from people who have done it really wonderful you can sign up in the entranceway for that uh, under workshops. Let's just take a moment, let go of the words, maybe pass the mic over to Tom. We're here while we're just settling in for a few breaths together. Appreciate that we can let go of the words. Do it that great vast space of silence, peace, 
Thanks everyone for coming tonight. Really great to be here together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.